Good evening, everyone. That new sound system really works, doesn't it? Wow. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the VHS, and I am delighted to welcome everyone to tonight's program here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. Before I introduce our speaker tonight, let me remind you of a few things coming up on the calendar. Uh, our next banner lecture, which is our regular noontime feature, will be Thursday, June 12th, which is next week if my brain calendar is accurate, at noon, Thursday the 12th at noon. That day, uh, Kevin Duffus will be here to speak on the subject of his book, War Zone, World War II Off the North Carolina Coast, which seems appropriate as so many of us head off to the North Carolina coast for vacation. Just imagine if there was a U-boat out there as you ride your belly board in the surf. Um, now, you may have noticed in your way, on your way in tonight that uh, there are some tables in the lobby that are fairly groaning under the weight of many, many, many books. These books have been donated for our annual used book sale. And you're very fortunate tonight because although the book sale really starts tomorrow, they will be available for your perusal and purchase this evening as you're here. Um, so remember, these were books that were donated, probably by many of you in this room, and I thank you for that. Uh, so as you've donated your books, of course, what you need to do is fill up your house with more books from someone else. <laughs> so please make sure you look at those books on your way out and perhaps purchase some. All proceeds, of course, help support our educational efforts. And the sale continues tomorrow and Saturday for anyone you know who's not here tonight. Now, well, you are all history aficionados, so I am sure that you know that tomorrow is a very special anniversary. D-Day, okay, just making sure. Uh, and I wanted to let you know that uh, we are running a very special bus trip up to Bedford for the special commemoration at the National D-Day Memorial. And I was just informed this afternoon there are three seats available on the bus. So when you're done here, if you are interested, please stop at the museum shop and sign up. But you need to move quickly because the bus leaves tomorrow morning at 7.15. <laughs> so please don't bolt out the door now. But when you're done here, if you're interested, it will be, I think, a moving experience for everybody. We all know the story of the Bedford boys and uh, the sacrifice that was made by that community. So uh, again, tomorrow at 7.15 if you're interested. Uh, you can find out more information about any of our upcoming lectures or trips um, on our website, vahistorical.org, or you can pick up information or register at the shop on your way out. And now, if you have a cell phone, please check it and make sure that it is silent or off or any of those uh, things that keep it from interrupting our speaker tonight. Now, as you know from the invitation, this is the fourth annual lecture in the new well, not new anymore if it's fourth annual, relatively new, Hazel and Fulton Chauncey Lecture Series. Hazel and Fulton Chauncey were longtime VHS members who had a special interest in the scholarly work of this institution. Their sons, Edwin Hall and Warren Fulton Chauncey, established this lecture series as a way to encourage that same appreciation for history and history education in others, particularly in young people. Warren Chauncey brought the idea to us a couple of years ago, and we immediately jumped on it, knowing that his requirement that the lecture be about the Civil War 
Virginia history, or Southern history, probably wouldn't be too much of an impediment for us to find good speakers. Uh, unfortunately, Warren's brother Edwin passed away in 2011 as we were planning the first lecture. But I am pleased that as every year, Warren is with us tonight, and I would like to ask him to stand and uh, let us show our appreciation to him for the uh, vision to establish this series. Warren, thank you very much. And of course, anyone who supported that fund, you have our thanks as well. And now for this evening's program. Robert E. Lee's surrender to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse evokes a highly gratifying image in the popular mind. It was, many believe, a moment that transcended politics, a moment of healing, a moment of patriotism untainted by ideology. But as Elizabeth Barron reveals in her latest book, this rosy image conceals a seething debate over precisely what the surrender meant and what kind of nation would emerge from war. In her book, Appomattox, she deftly captures the events swirling around that well-remembered but not well-understood moment when the Civil War ended. Did America's best days lie in the past or in the future? For Lee, it was the past, the era of the founding generation. For Grant, it was the future, represented by northern moral and material progress. They held, in the end, two opposite views of the direction of the country and of the meaning of the war that changed the country forever. Elizabeth Varon is the Langbourne M. Williams Professor of American History at the University of Virginia. She is the author of numerous articles and books, including Disunion, The Coming of the American Civil War, 1789 to 1859, Southern Lady, Yankee Spy, The True Story of Elizabeth Van Lu, a Union agent in the heart of the Confederacy, and most recently, Appomattox, Victory, Defeat, and Freedom at the End of the Civil War, which has won the 2014 Laney Prize for Civil War History from the Austin Civil War Roundtable, and was a finalist for the Jefferson Davis Award at the Museum of the Confederacy. I must also add that she is a finalist for the People's Choice Award from Library of Virginia, and we all have an opportunity to get her across the finish line for that award because they let you vote for it. So I know I told you just a minute ago to put away your cell phones, but you have an excuse now. If you want to take it out very quickly and vote for her book, Appomattox, in the nonfiction category, you can do so and then put the cell phones right back away. So anyhow, but please do go online and vote for Liz's wonderful book. She has always been a great friend to the VHS. She has not only spent time in our reading room and has spoken here on various occasions, but she also served on the editorial advisory board of the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography from 2000 to 2002. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Liz Varon, who will speak to us tonight on Lee at Appomattox. It's such a wonderful pleasure and honor to be here at this place, one of my favorite places on the planet, among the very people who do so much to sustain and support it. So thank you for this warm welcome. Our subject matter today, Lee at Appomattox. The people look first to you 
in their trying difficulties. No one has their confidence as you have. Your counsel would produce an effect like that of oil on troubled waters. So wrote General Richard S. Ewell, formerly commander of the Second Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia, to Robert E. Lee on April 17, 1865. Ewell was a prisoner of war. En route to Fort Warren in Boston Harbor, he'd fallen into federal hands at the Battle of Sailor's Creek during Lee's retreat, and therefore had been unable to claim the probationary freedom that came with an Appomattox parole. Ewell would spend the spring and summer lobbying for the federal authorities to release him on the grounds that he was ready, and indeed had been for some time, to accept Confederate defeat and pledge allegiance to the victorious Union. Finally, in July of 1865, Ewell was paroled by President Andrew Johnson, and he headed south to settle on his wife's farmlands in Tennessee. At this moment, though, April 17, 1865, in the immediate aftermath of the surrender and of Lincoln's assassination, Ewell sought in reaching out to Lee both to ascertain Lee's views and to influence them. He laid out the abject situation of their native Virginia at the end of the war. The state was overwhelmed, Ewell wrote to Lee, by the vast power and resources of the U.S. government after having borne the brunt of a war not of her own seeking. Her landscape, Virginia's landscape, was ravaged, Ewell added, by the repeated tread of hostile armies. What were defeated Southerners to do? Ewell's prescription and advice for Lee was this, quote, it ought to be recommended to them to accept the past, to make the best of the present and future, and to yield quietly and with dignity to the U.S. authorities. Now, Lee hasn't enjoyed a reputation in modern scholarship for exerting precisely the kind of leadership that Ewell urged upon him for counseling Southerners by deed and word to accept the situation. But to attribute to Lee a posture of dignified resignation after the war is to miss the nuances in his post-war exercise of leadership. In the year after the surrender, Lee was not unanimously regarded in the North or in the South as a symbol of reunion or a model of resignation. Indeed, in the eyes of former Confederates, Lee was a symbol of unbowed Southern pride and of measured defiance. Lee's comportment and public image at the moment of the surrender and in its immediate aftermath thus run counter to the myth of Appomattox as a gentleman's agreement between two men, Lee and Grant, who for the good of the country rose above their animosities on April 9, 1865. I'll argue today that the surrender was instead an inherently political moment that would set the terms of an unfolding debate about the meaning of the war. Lee and Grant, consummate leaders both, knew this. That's why each man moved to stake out a position, even as the surrender drama is unfolding. Lee at Appomattox sought to turn military defeat into moral victory. In his view, the war, which was brought on by extremism, had cost America dearly. The peace was an opportunity for the country to obliterate the war's grievous effects, as Lee put it, and to regain what it had lost, to restore the civic virtue Lee associated with the promising days of the early republic before the Union's fall from grace. For Lee, the surrender was a negotiation in which he secured honorable terms for his blameless men, and the peace was contingent on the North's good behavior. The Union victory in Lee's eyes was one of might over right. Grant's position was diametrically opposed to Lee's. In Grant's view, the Federal Army's triumph flowed from the superior virtue of its cause. The surrender was, in Grant's view, in no sense a negotiation. Grant believed he had all the cards 
on April 9, 1865. Grant's mercy was designed not to exonerate the Confederates, but to effect their repentance and atonement for their sins and crimes. This is how Grant saw things. Grant believed he could be merciful precisely because he had rendered Lee utterly powerless and his cause discredited and hopeless. For Grant, the Union victory was one of right over wrong, and the peace was contingent on the South's good behavior. Lee's interpretation with its nostalgia for the pre-war past was utterly incompatible with Grant's, with its emphasis on change and progress. To elucidate Lee's views and their legacy, I'll focus today on three moments. On the surrender drama as it unfolds in April of 1865, on an interview Lee gave later that month with the Northern Reporter, published in the Northern Press, and on Lee's testimony before Congress in February of 1866. I'll circle back at the end to Grant to underscore how wide an ideological chasm existed between the two men at the moment of the surrender's first anniversary. But we'll begin first with Lee's famous correspondence with Grant over the course of the retreat from Richmond and Petersburg to Appomattox. On April 8, 1865, in the midst of this desperate retreat, Lee penned a letter to Grant in response to Grant's suggestion that the Confederate cause was hopeless and the time had come to capitulate. Lee wrote, quote, to be frank, I do not think the emergency has arisen to call for the surrender of this army, but as the restoration of peace should be the sole object of all, I desire to know whether your proposals would lead to that end. I cannot therefore meet you with a view to surrender the Army of Northern Virginia, but as far as your proposal may tend to the restoration of peace, I should be pleased to meet you. In using the word restoration twice, Lee began to elaborate his vision of an honorable peace, an honorable defeat for the Confederates. So what did he mean by restoration? It was, of course, a favorite theme of the Northern Peace Democrats who deplored the Lincoln administration's conduct of the war, particularly the advent of emancipation, and who sought to return the Union to the way it was. Lincoln's foes in the North. Lee had hoped in vain that Confederate battlefield victories might swell this chorus of Northern dissent and bring the North to the negotiating table so that the Democrats in the North might overthrow Lincoln. But Lee's own understanding of restoration was distinct from that of Northern Democrats. It was rooted in his family culture and in the culture of his native Virginia. Like many other Virginians of his generation and elite bloodline, Lee was steeped in nostalgia for the days of the early republic when the other states almost took it for granted that Virginia would be their leader and when Virginians felt a proprietary pride in the Union. For Lee, an honorable peace would restore to the South the prosperity and influence, these are his words, he associated with the halcyon days of an imagined past before the nation had drifted away from the principles of the Virginia founders, before abolitionists had imbued African Americans with false hopes of freedom and equality. Lee didn't seek at this moment the restoration of slavery, he knew that was not possible, but he certainly sought the preservation of the South's racial hierarchy. From April 1865 on, restoration would be Lee's political keyword, and we see it crop up again and again and again in his post-war correspondence. For example, six months after the surrender, he wrote to his friend Matthew Fontaine Maury the following lament about what had been and what might again be. Lee wrote, quote, as long as virtue was dominant in the Republic, so long was the happiness of the people secure. May an ever merciful God save us from destruction and restore us to the bright hopes and prospects of the past. 
this was a fundamentally backward-looking view of the piece. Lee's hopes for restoration were premised not only on nostalgia, but also on the case that his army was blameless. He elaborated that case on April 10 in his farewell address to his army, drafted under Lee's guidance by his aide, Charles Marshall. It began famously, quote, after four years of arduous service, marked by unsurpassed courage and fortitude, the Army of Northern Virginia has been compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources. Confederate troops had remained steadfast to the last, Lee continued, and could draw satisfaction even in this bitter hour from the consciousness of duty faithfully performed. Lee's address immediately took on an iconic status. It had profound emotional resonance for Confederates to his starving and exhausted troops. The Yankee army seemed endless and encompassing. But Lee's farewell address had layers of meaning and deep tangled roots. For white Southerners, the reference to overwhelming numbers and resources was a sort of code. In the context of pro-slavery ideology and of the Confederate creed, numbers conjured up a Northern army of mercenaries and hirelings who had been seduced or coerced into service for the Union and had no real moral stake in the fight. Resources conjured up images of northern factories and cities in which an exploited underclass churned out the material of war at the behest of rapacious capitalists. Secessionists had argued that the burgeoning wealth and population of the North was an indictment of northern society, of its social instability and obsession with the bottom line. The farewell address's reference to the unsurpassed courage and fortitude of the Confederate troops was part and parcel of that same indictment of the North. Defenders of the Southern way of life had made a staple of the claim that Southern men, accustomed to mastery and rural ways, were made of sterner stuff than Northern wage slaves. Lee was a very sophisticated man, and he was well aware of this ideological freight. In implying that Union troops had not been the equals of Confederate ones and the essential attributes of manhood, Lee's farewell address made a political statement. By denying the legitimacy of the North's military victory, Confederates could deny the North the right to impose its political will on the South. At Appomattox, Lee moved on a second front to cast the surrender terms in the best possible light. Hoping that their paroles could confer on his men a measure of immunity from reprisals at the hands of the victorious Federals, Lee requested of Grant at their April 10 meeting on horseback, they met the day after the McLean House uh, meeting briefly, April 10. At that meeting on horseback, Lee requests that each individual, individual Confederate be issued a printed certificate signed by a Union officer as proof that such a soldier came under the settlement of April 9. Grant readily assented to Lee's request. In keeping with the language of the surrender terms, a parole certificate vouched that if a soldier observed the laws and force where he resided, he was not to be disturbed. Union men imagined that these certificates would remind the defeated, surrendered Confederates of the obligations attendant upon their status as paroled prisoners of war. This surrender by parole was a military convention. Grant would explain that he believed that he was protecting the lives of these defeated Confederates, that he wasn't resolving the issues of their property rights and political rights. Those things would be taken up by the civil authorities. Uh, but again, the purpose of the paroles and unionized was to remind Confederates of their obligation to, to obey the law. 
But Confederates emphasized the not-to-be-disturbed clause on these paroles. In their eyes, the paroles did confer political immunity, and the paroles represented the promise, the promise that honorable men would not be treated dishonorably. Now, I've proposed that Lee's correspondence with Grant and his farewell address and his request for parole passes were inherently political. And all we need to do to appreciate this is to look at Northern and Southern reactions to the surrender drama. Northern accounts of the meeting in the McLean House penned by officers in Grant's inner circle who bore witness to that meeting, April 9, 1865, Wilmer McLean's house, they offer up some contradictory images of Lee that Northern observers ascribe to Lee either abject powerlessness and acquiescence or unjustified haughtiness. Those are the two images that we see in these Northern accounts. The, those who provide these accounts agree on one thing, and that is that Grant was Lee's superior and that Grant's strength and courage and simple, natural, unaffected honesty were on display at the McLean House. Confederate accounts, by contrast, portray the surrender scene as an enactment of Lee's superiority to Grant. The only first-hand Confederate witness to the proceedings in the McLean House was Lee's aide-de-camp, Charles Marshall. And in Marshall's telling, Lee was neither acquiescent nor was he haughty. Rather, the surrender, and I'm quoting Marshall here, illustrated the great qualities that adorned Lee's character. The very fact that Lee chose to receive the terms in person, deigned to meet with Grant, was for Marshall richly symbolic. While Grant had offered in their correspondence to meet with designated Confederate officers rather than Lee himself, Lee had chosen the path of duty as if it had been the way of triumph, as Marshall put it. By meeting in person with Grant, Lee implicitly insisted that his own conduct and cause were beyond reproach. Lee, according to Marshall, was unfailingly cordial to Grant and the Union troops, and that civility, according to Marshall, was returned by them as a mark of their respect for so great an adversary. In Marshall's view, Lee was not a passive recipient of Grant's leniency, but instead made a series of propositions, such as the suggestion that Confederates might retain their horses, to which Grant assented. Marshall also delighted in contrasting Lee's elegant attire with Grant's shabby uniform. Lee's fine dress was, in Marshall's account, symbolic of the gap in experience and authority and achievement and social stature between the two men. In Marshall's view, Grant is overawed by Lee. Grant, uh, Lee, in a sense, still commands Grant's deference, even in this moment of defeat. Lee, who might have been justified in haughtiness or coldness, had chosen the course of civility instead. This is Marshall's view. Marshall's reminiscences echo some in-the-moment coverage of the surrender in the Confederate press, or I should say reports uh, about the surrender in the press, and also uh, reflections in diaries and letters from the spring of 1865. I'll give you an example. A revealing, if fanciful, report on the conference at the McLean House circulated through Confederate newspapers in late April of 1865. And in this account, Lee offers Grant his sword, and Grant refuses to take it. According to the newspaper account, Grant turns to Lee and says, quote, General Lee, keep that sword. You have won it by your gallantry. You have not been whipped, but overpowered, and I cannot receive it as a token of surrender from so brave a man, unquote. 
Of course, U.S. Grant never said any such thing to Robert E. Lee. <laughs> but the report seemed credible to Confederates because it affirmed the might overwrite interpretation. Confederate diarist Emma Holmes wrote of the surrender scene that Union officers cheered for Lee as he left the McLean house and that rank-and-file Yankees dared not utter a single insulting word to the defeated rebels. Why were the Yankees so reticent and submissive even? Holmes explained. They feared the lion even in chains. They feared the lion even in chains. As for the farewell address, it too was controversial from the start. I've explained that it took on iconic status for white Southerners as an unimpeachable explanation for Confederate defeat, overwhelming numbers and resources. There can be no shame in such a defeat. But Northern commentators who read the text of the farewell address in Northern papers as early as April uh, 10 and 11, Northern commentators interpreted Lee's address as a cynical ploy by Lee to manipulate public opinion and as evidence that Lee was unrepentant in defeat. For example, an article in the New York Evening Post, edited by the radical Republican William Cullen Bryant, excoriated Lee for his references in the farewell address to the Confederates' devotion to their country and their satisfaction in duty faithfully performed. That Lee dared to congratulate the rebel soldiers at the moment of defeat was nothing less, Bryant argued, than, quote, a slap in the face to loyal soldiers, unquote, an insult to Union soldiers. Lee had chosen, Bryant continued, to blurt out his treason and to use his influence over the army which he had surrendered to rouse them to new rebellion and to justify future insurrection. So again, in the eyes of Northerners, the farewell address, not a salve to the soul of these defeated Confederates, but fighting words, fighting words. Even the simple clause in the surrender terms that Confederate parolees were not to be disturbed if they obeyed the laws had strong political overtones. In the year after the war, Confederates again and again invoked the Appomattox terms and particularly the parole language, the not to be disturbed clause, as a shield against social change and a weapon in the looming battle over black civil rights. Republican efforts to give the freed people a measure of equality and opportunity and protection were met by Confederate protests that such a radical agenda was a betrayal of the Appomattox terms, that the prospect of black citizenship, as one Virginia newspaper put it, quote, molests and disturbs us. In short, Confederates believed that Lee had drawn a line in the sand at Appomattox. The North Carolina poet Mary Baird Clark put it most succinctly. Urging Southerners to model their behavior on that of Lee, she wrote in the summer of 1866 that he had, quote, not stooped his grandly proud head one hair's breadth since he surrendered to Grant. Confederates would observe their parole terms, she said, but more than this, she insisted, and here I'm quoting her, an honorable enemy should not desire. It is idle to attempt to force them to say and feel they were wrong or they were right. Now we know that Lee avoided any overt politicking after the war, and we know that he sought quietly to return to civilian life and, and uh, assume the presidency of Washington College. On what then was Clark's image of Lee as unyielding, unbowed, based? We'll turn now to two revealing public performances by Lee that helped to define his post-war image, his April interview with the New York Herald and his congressional testimony. On April 24, 1865, the surrender was April 9, just a few weeks later, 
Lee, now back at home in Richmond, agreed to be interviewed by a reporter, Thomas Cook, for the New York Herald. The New York Herald was a very popular and influential newspaper. It represented a pro-war democratic point of view, meaning it had been critical of Lincoln's Republican administration during the war, but welcoming of Grant's lenient terms and hopeful that the new president, Andrew Johnson, would prove magnanimous to the South. Cook's lengthy account of this interview that he had with Lee, in which Cook paraphrases Lee and quotes Lee and offers a lot of big dose of editorial commentary, this account of the interview was published in the Herald on April 29, 1865, under the heading, The Rebellion, View of General Robert E. Lee. Cook began on a deferential note, describing Lee as the very image of chivalry, the nobility even, of elite Virginians. Cook announced that he intended to present Lee's political views to the public. As the interview got underway, Lee at first demurred. I am a paroled prisoner, he told Cook, not a politician. But when prompted by Cook, Lee proved expansive in his answers. Cook began by asking about secession and about Lee's famous pledge from the eve of the war that save in defense of his native state, Lee would never again raise his sword. Lee obligingly portrayed himself to Cook as a reluctant secessionist, someone who clung to the Union until secession was a fait accompli and chose the Confederacy because his state allegiance to Virginia demanded that he do so. And this image of Lee accords well with what we know from other sources. Lee had indeed agonized over secession, and his dilemma had played out in the spring of 1861 as a public drama with Unionists and secessionists alike courting him and secessionists winning him over in the 11th hour. Cook then turned to the subject of the surrender and the peace. Lee in this interview initially adopted the posture of a peacemaker. He deplored the assassination of Lincoln as a terrible crime beyond execration, as Lee put it. Lee claimed, according to Cook, that the South had long been anxious for peace and had waited only for some word or expression of compromise or conciliation from the North. Now, this may seem a strange observation coming from Lee, the South's leading warrior, a man deeply committed to Southern independence, but this was, in fact, a sort of standard anti-Republican argument made not only by Confederates but by Northern Democrats. This was the argument that Lincoln and the Republicans were to blame for the destructiveness and duration of the Civil War, that the Republicans had needlessly prolonged the war in order to effect a social revolution in the South. Lee even claimed in this interview that the demise of slavery was no obstacle to peace, as the quote-unquote best men of the South had long been anxious to do away with the peculiar institution and now fully accepted the reality of emancipation. This also, on the face of it, is, seem, might seem a sort of surprising observation from Lee, but this was part and parcel of an old defense of slavery, what we've called the necessary evil defense of slavery, dates back to Jefferson's era, had a long lineage uh, in Virginia, and this was a defense of slavery that implied that Southerners would have volunteer voluntarily devised a gradual, peaceful way to end slavery if fanatical abolitionists had not steered the country off its moderate course. In other words, Lee's answers uh, in the, to the questions posed by Cook had distinct, a distinct political context. For Cook, the most striking feature of his conversation with Lee was that the rebel general, and strange as it may appear, talked throughout as a citizen of the United States. Lee, and here I'm quoting Cook, frequently alluded to the country and expressed most earnestly his solicitude for its restoration, here's that word again, to peace and tranquility. Now, according to one modern biographer, Lee's interview was a naive and clumsy effort 
not only to justify himself, but to argue away the threat of retribution. If he appeared to be a yielding good union man, uh, he wouldn't be punished or held to account. But the notion that Lee was naive is belied by a key passage in the interview. For even as he offered up professions of goodwill, Lee also in this interview issued a warning to Northerners. The peace, he argued, was conditional, and Southerners would hold Northerners to the observance of the conditions. Lee put special emphasis on the following point, quote, should arbitrary or vindictive or revengeful policies be adopted, the end was not yet. The South still had sources of strength, Lee insisted, which harsh measures on the part of the North would call into action. Lee warned that the South could, quote, protract the struggle for an indefinite period if extermination, confiscation, and general annihilation were the North's policy. Southerners would renew the fight and give their lives as dearly as possible. This is Lee's voice as mediated by Cook. In short, Lee's own political views come through strongly and unmistakably in this April 29 interview. Lee, in effect, proposed that the Appomattox terms were a contract by which the North must abide. Lee's interview with Cook escalated a fierce debate in the North about Lee. Again, Lee is a polarizing figure, not a symbol of resignation and reunion in this uh, sort of a turbulent period right after the war. This debate had taken shape in the days after Lincoln's assassination. It was a debate over whether Lee was a fearsome villain or a tragic hero. Again, a debate among Northerners. On one side of the debate were those in the anti-slavery and radical Republican press, and some moderate Republicans too, who believed that Lee represented the worst of the South, that Lee was as wily a politician as Jefferson Davis himself. Some of these critics were sure Lee should be punished for his treason. Others would be satisfied with evidence that he had truly repented for his crimes. On the other side, again, a Northern debate, were Northern Democrats and even some conservative Republicans who insisted that Lee represented the best of the South, a soldier's courage, honesty, and decency. Among his defenders, some believed that Lee was already genuinely repentant, and others thought he had nothing to apologize for. A June 1865 article in the New York Times, again, this is just a few months now after the surrender, offered a penetrating overview of where these northern debates stood at the beginning of the summer of 1865. Northern Democratic papers claimed that Grant's terms, particularly the clause stipulating that parolees would not be disturbed so long as they observed the terms of their parole, these Democratic papers essentially supported, endorsed, echoed the Confederate position that the sur surrender terms conferred political immunity on Lee and protected him from being tried for treason. The New York Times, a Republican paper, countered that Lee had no such immunity. Alluding to the recent Herald interview, the New York Times editorialized, Lee still persists in declaring that he has not committed treason, that he drew his sword only to defend Virginia against an unconstitutional uh, invasion. Was Lee a, a tragic hero or a fearsome villain? The Times opined that there was only one way to resolve this debate by, quote, an arraignment, a trial, and a sentence. Would Lee be made to pay for his lack of repentance? Lee's fate lay in the hands of the new president, Andrew Johnson. As Johnson took office, he promised to deal sternly with traitors. And at first, Johnson seemed to make good on this promise. In early May of 1865, Johnson approved death sentences for four of the conspirators in the Lincoln assassination, 
and he clapped Jefferson Davis into prison, Fortress Monroe in Virginia, to await an uncertain fate. But Johnson showed his true colors when on May 29, 1865, he formally proclaimed his Reconstruction policy. Johnson's amnesty proclamation required Confederates to take an oath of allegiance to the United States government as a condition for the restoration of their individual political and property rights. There were 14 categories of exemptions to this rule, high-ranking Confederate civil and military officials and members of the old antebellum elite would have to apply directly to the president for their pardons. It wasn't enough to take uh, the oath before a, um, a, an underling or some other sort of magistrate. They had to apply directly to the president for their par pardons. Johnson believed that this amnesty proclamation represented a middle ground between universal forgiveness of Confederates and universal punishment of them. But in practice, the new president soon abdicated that middle ground. He proved susceptible to the entreaties of his former foes, the Confederates, and he granted them pardons gladly, issuing at least 15,000 pardons to individual rebels, this the Southern elite over the course of his time in office, 15,000. Johnson's May 29 proclamation initiated a period of self-reconstruction in the South during which thousands of former Confederates held political office and during which the new Southern state governments prescribed the rights of the freed people to push them into a state of subordination as close as possible to slavery. Historians have offered a variety of explanations as to why Johnson so quickly settled into this policy of appeasement of his former enemies, the Confederates. They've cited Johnson's commitment to white supremacy, his pleasure in having the haughty planter class come before him on bended knee. Johnson, uh, as you all know, was a, a, a very uh, poor background, a sort of bootstrap story. They cite his Jacksonian belief in the supremacy of the executive branch and his suspicion of Congress. They cite his Southerners' commitments to states' rights and his desire to build a new electoral constituency with these former Confederates at its core for a presidential bid in 1868. So where did all of this leave Lee? Johnson initially seemed to have it in for Lee. He supported the June 1865 indictment of Lee on charges of treason. But Johnson backed down when Grant, Grant insisted that the surrender terms should protect Lee and other parolees from such a fate. That is to say, again, the terms of military convention protected their lives. Lee applied for a pardon from Johnson and signed an amnesty oath and although Lee's application got lost due to some bureaucratic malfeasance, Lee and Johnson soon became political allies. Lee and Johnson became allies, even as Johnson and Grant fast became enemies. Lee hoped that Johnson's policy of conciliation would restore to white Southerners the political power and prestige. While some Southerners criticized Lee for taking the oath for submitting a, uh, an application pardon application, most white Southerners implicitly understood that Lee's request for a pardon was a means to an end, the means to the end of restoring the political voice of his fellow Confederates. As one Virginian put it to a Northern reporter who was visiting Richmond in July of 1865, Lee hoped in applying for his pardon to set an example for the high-toned young men of the South to show them that the salvation of the country would depend on their participating in the rights of citizenship. Don't turn your back on the country, he was saying, uh, uh, but try to exert influence in its governance. Lee had not bowed down and begged for mercy. Instead, Lee's pardon application had avowed 
so this uh, account read, had avowed his unchanging devotion to his former principles. Again, Lee is unyielding and unbowed. This devotion to his former principles was evident in Lee's February 17, 1866 testimony before Congress. Lee was summoned by the Republican-dominated Joint Committee on Reconstruction. This committee was convened to investigate conditions in the South. And over the course of the winter and spring of 1866, it conducted interviews with 144 witnesses. As the historian John Hope Franklin has explained, the Joint Committee was a forum for airing all the shortcomings of President Johnson's Reconstruction policies and justifying the need for a congressional program. The cornerstone of that congressional program would, of course, be black suffrage voting by former slaves in the South. The committee interviewed Lee to gauge the disposition of former Confederates toward the federal government. The first substantive question Lee was asked was about the state of feeling among former Confederates in Virginia. And Lee answered, as far as I've heard anyone express an opinion, Virginians are for cooperating with President Johnson in his policy. When asked to elaborate, Lee continued, I've heard persons with whom I have conversed express great confidence in the wisdom of Johnson's policy of restoration, and they seem to look forward to it as a hope for restoration. Lee's reflexive use of this word restoration piqued the committee, and they pressed him. Did Southerners support Johnson out of a desire for peace and good feeling in the country, as one Missouri Republican asked Lee, or did they support Johnson from the probability of their regaining political power? Lee answered cagely, so far as I know, the desire of the people of the South is for the restoration of the civil government, and they look upon the policy of President Johnson as the one which would most clearly reestablish it. But this congressman, his name was Henry Blow, wouldn't let the question go. And when it came around to be his turn again to interrogate Lee, he asked Lee again, did Southerners want peace or did they want to regain their power? This time Lee answered that he was not inclined to separate the two points. Southern states sought to have their equality with the northern ones restored. And Lee noted the North should be generous because it was the best way of regaining the good opinion of the South. Saying this to a congressional committee, you, it's, the burden is on you to regain the good opinion of the South. Throughout the interview, Lee proved calm and collected. He did not concede an inch. When asked about race relations, he repeated the argument that he had made in his interview with the April, with the, with the Herald, the April 1865 interview, the idea that he had always favored gradual emancipation. Blacks, he averred, and I'm quoting him, were not as capable of acquiring knowledge as whites. He described them as an quote-unquote amiable social race who liked their ease and comfort. They were, he insisted, being well treated in the post-war South by their former masters. Needless to say, Lee's testimony contravened, went against the grain of the vast majority of the rest of the testimony that this congressional committee heard. Testimony from African Americans themselves, from white Southern Unionists who had supported the Union cause during the war, and from Northerners living in the South. Unionist Southerners, white and black, along with their northern allies, presented the committee with a dreary recital of inhumanity, as John Hope Franklin has explained, hundreds of pages of testimony describing the hostility of former Confederates to the Union and the suffering and vulnerability of the free people under Johnson's regime. For example, this is one example of many, a former slave and Underground Railroad agent uh, from Norfolk, Thomas Bain, observed in his interview with the committee, quote, it is not uncommon to hear threats such as this. We will kill one Negro at least 
for every rebel soldier killed by the Yankees. Lee, on February 17, 1866, looked his questioners in the eye, the very same men who heard the testimony of Bain and other African-American witnesses, and he denied, Lee did, the reality of anti-black violence in the post-war South. Is it possible that Lee, in relative seclusion at Washington College, didn't know about the extent of white ill will and violence towards blacks? Lee's defenders have frequently noted that he formally prohibited and condemned acts of racial violence by Washington College students against Lexington's black population. In one incident that's central to Lee's lore, he prevented the lynching of an African-American man who got into a scuffle with a student after failing to step into the gutter when the student's mother walked down the street. But such stories, of course, cut both ways. They reveal that Lee was all too aware that Southern communities, even his beloved Lexington, were seething cauldrons of racial tension and recrimination. In telling the Joint Committee of the kind feelings whites in Virginia had for blacks, Lee revived the pre-war Southern fantasy of paternalism, the idea that masters had been kindly custodians of their black wards, extending them care in exchange for their submission. Its post-war corollary was the fantasy that only the Southern elite could steward the freed people through a transition, not to equality, but to a new form of subordination as a class of perpetual serfs. After the war, as before, paternalism was an ideological bulwark against Yankee interference in the South and a shield for white Southerners against charges of moral wrongdoing. Thus, although Lee defined the Joint Committee, contravened the vast majority of the evidence that it had heard, he, no less than the other witnesses, confirmed this Congressional Committee in its central conclusion. The evidence of intense hostility to the Federal Union and an equally intense love of the late Confederacy nurtured by the war is decisive, the majority report of the Joint Committee read. They found Lee to be utterly lacking in repentance and took him to be representative of his fellow Confederates. In their eyes, there had been at the moment of the surrender a, a, a sort of golden moment. The Confederate South had been on April 9 in a state of exhaustion, prostration, but Johnson's policies had revived the Southern temper and the ex-rebels now brazenly sought to participate in making laws for their conquerors, as the, uh, the committee's report read. Supporters of Johnson drew an entirely different conclusion from Lee's testimony. Supporters of Johnson believed that Lee's testimony showed that restoration was nearing completion and could be consummated if only Republicans desisted from pushing their radical agenda. The most revealing defense of Lee came from the pages of the Richmond Examiner and from its combative editors, uh, the Pollard, uh, uh, Pollards, H. Reeves and Edward A. Pollard. The examiner held up Lee's testimony as a political beacon for Southerners to follow through the dark days ahead. The words that fall from the lips of such a man as General Lee must be heard with great respect. He has shown himself a great and good man through a testing ordeal, the examiner's analysis of this congressional testimony began. The examiner then praised Lee for having taken a strong stand Lee demonstrated in his meeting with his congressional inquisitors that he had, quote, the proper idea of the colored man's intellect, unquote, uh, meaning the, the, uh, a conviction of uh, black inferiority, and that he, Lee, fully endorsed Johnson's policies as wise and humane. The inquirer took note of the fact that Lee professed to keep a distance from politics, but they chalked Lee's dis disavowals up to modesty, saying, we may be assured that in what he says may be found the matured results of a clear mind working on a sufficient fund of fact. The editors predicted that the Lee interview would tend to do much good. For the bulk of the Joint Committee's report, the Pollards insisted, was a slander 
intended to blacken the character of the Southern people and to furnish a pretext for the denial of their constitutional rights. Who better to defend Southern character than Lee? The Examiner editors trumpeted the influence of Lee's interview because they knew perfectly well how important an ideological claim, claim Lee had staked. Lee's testimony before the Joint Committee not only lent his prestige to Johnson's policies, it fortified white Southerners, as his farewell address had, in the conviction that they were blameless. Let me now pivot to my conclusion. In the war's aftermath, as Lee encountered Northern hostility and resistance to his interpretation of the war's meaning, he dug in his heels and became more entrenched ideologically. No longer was Lee willing, after the war as he had been on the eve of the war, to decry extremism of all kinds, Southern extremism and Northern extremism. Lee had come firmly to believe that the only problem was Northern extremism. The only difficulty in the way of an amicable adjustment was with the Republican Party, as he put it in a letter to Sir John uh, Dalbrook Acton, a pro-Confederate British politician in December of 1866. Lee did not passively, passively accept the verdict of defeat. Instead, he maintained, as he put it, that the judgment of reason had been displaced by the chaos of war and that reason, synonymous with conservative politics, must be made to prevail again. As for Grant, he came to fear in the year after the war that Johnson's lenience and Lee's recalcitrance had fueled a process by which the North's victory was slipping away. Grant was radicalized by the resurgence of the Southern elite under Johnson's program and came to embrace the congressional program of reconstruction. Confronted with what he dubbed the foolhardiness of the president, Johnson, and the blindness of the Southern people to their own interests, Grant adapted. I'm quoting him from his memoirs. He wrote, I gradually worked up to the point where, with the majority of people, I favored immediate enfranchisement for blacks. This was the only way Grant reckoned to neutralize the political party in the North which had sympathized with the rebellion, namely the Democrats, and to dispel the ex-Confederates' pretension that they would once again be able to control the nation and were entitled to do so. Grant singled out Lee for opprobrium in an interview he granted on May 12, 1866 to the editor of the Lewiston Falls, Maine uh, newspaper, The Journal. A transcript of Grant's conversation with this Maine editor was published widely in the North, first in the New York Times and then in the Chicago Tribune and in other papers. So now Grant's interview. Grant was dressed in a plain back black suit and puffed out wreaths of cigar smoke as he talked, so the reporter noted. The interview reveals that the conviction at the heart of Grant's Appomattox terms remained unchanged. In Grant's view, war had been the South's punishment, peace, leniency, magnanimity, its chance for atonement. But to Grant's disappointment, the promised atonement had not come. Southerners, Grant told his interview, were, quote, much less disposed now to bring themselves to the proper frame of mind than they were one year since, when the victory was new. Now, he said to the reporter, they regard themselves as masters of the situation. Grant then took to task Lee, who was, in his view, quote, behaving badly, unquote. And here I quote Grant. Lee is conducting himself very differently from what I had reason, from what he said at the time of the surrender, to suppose he would. No man at the South is capable of exercising a tenth part of the influence for good that he is, but instead of using it, he is setting an example of forced acquiescence so grudging and pernicious in its effects as to be hardly realized, unquote. Grant's view of Lee, grudging acquiescence, pernicious in its effects. Such an assessment strongly suggests that Grant had read Lee's testimony before the Joint Committee and perhaps the New York Herald interview too. 
But it raises the question, how exactly had Grant hoped Lee would behave? Grant offered a clue when, in this interview, he praised the comportment of Generals Joseph Johnston and Richard Taylor. These men were urging Southerners, according to Grant, to throw aside their old prejudices and conform their course to the changed condition of things. Neither of the men Grant mentioned, as it turned out, would stand by the Republican Party in the long term. But in the coming years, a few prominent rebel leaders, Appomattox veterans Longstreet and Mahone, and the famed partisan ranger of Northern Virginia, Colonel John Mosby, would embrace the Republican Party. As Longstreet would put it in an 1867 letter endorsing the reconstruction of the South and urging Southerners to accept black civil rights, Longstreet would write, the ideas that divided the political parties before the war upon the rights of the states were thoroughly discussed by our wisest statesmen and eventually appealed to the arbitration of the sword. The decision was in favor of the North, so her construction becomes the law and should be accepted. Longstreet's position was, your victory at arms is a victory for your principles, and Southerners must accept that. While Grant was not naive enough to have expected those words to have come from Lee's mouth, he would have liked for Lee to evince some of the deference and repentance found in Longstreet's letter. Longstreet, of course, paid a heavy price for his conversion, as did Mahone and Mosby. These men were dubbed traitors to the Confederacy by Southern Democrats and took on a pariah status among many white Southerners. Was Lee's standing among Southerners so exalted as Grant imagined it to be that he could have chosen to uh, reconcile them to the changed condition of things? The question was moot. Lee had chosen in the years since the surrender to play a nervy game. No one could deny that Lee had technically upheld the terms of his parole, but Grant had wanted more. Grant had hoped at Appomattox that the military men might teach the politicians a lesson or two, that he and Lee together would show the world how soldiers win and lose with courage and candor. Instead, Lee had spoken to his followers in code, encouraging them to denigrate the Union victory as a mere show of force, to resist change in the name of restoration, and to obscure Southern violence behind the veil of genteel paternalism. As the curtain fell on the first anniversary of Appomattox, Grant's eyes were wide open with influential Republicans already suggesting that he, Grant, the hero of Appomattox, must lead the Republican Party in peace as he had led the Union Army in war, Grant was coming to see, reluctantly, that he must enter the teeming arena of politics to accomplish the work he had begun on April 9, 1865. In his memoirs, Grant would write of the Civil War, quote, we are better off now than we would have been without it and have made more rapid progress than we otherwise should have made, unquote. Grant's ethos of progress held no charm for Lee. Even as Grant in the late 1860s braved the shoals of political office, Lee found a safe harbor among his students and admirers in his books. Lee dreamed of writing a definitive account of his campaigns in which a band of honorable heroes would ride forth again to strike at northern tyranny and power. I want that the world shall know what my poor boys but their small numbers and scant resources succeeded in accomplishing, Lee wrote. Lee prepared and published a biographical sketch of his father, the Revolutionary War hero like horse Harry Lee, and he found solace in works of history, the Iliad, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, Macaulay's England, Marshall's Life of Washington, and books on the campaigns of Napoleon. It is history that teaches us to hope, Lee observed, speaking for so many white Southerners who believed that they were living in a tragic era. Thank you.
I'd be most delighted to take questions if people have them. Oh, surely someone has a question. We have a few minutes. Nope, yeah, there's a question. You mentioned that the Army at Swindon at Appomattox, they were paroled, okay? Did they have any rights as far as voting rights immediately, or was there a period of time under that parole before they got these rights back? And did the other armies that surrendered also come under a parole system? So uh, there are um, uh, there is a, a second major surrender to, uh, with great fanfare of, uh, of Johnston's army to Sherman. Sherman initially uh, spells out terms that are even more lenient than Grant's that seem to address some of these questions of property rights and political immunity that Grant was instructed by Lincoln not to address. I mean, Grant had a mandate. Lincoln said, you are a military man. You're not to deal with political issues. You're to affect the surrender of the army. And again, surrender by parole is a military convention. Doesn't technically address this question of political rights or property rights. Grant was in favor of a soft peace, so he hoped that the civil authorities would act in Lincoln's spirit and be lenient to, to the Confederates. And again, the purpose of Grant's leniency was not to exonerate the Confederates, but to affect their repentance. In Grant's eyes, the Union's magnanimity was a sign of the moral superiority of the Union's way of life and way of war. And, and he felt that if he was generous, Southerners would see this and that they would, uh, they would embrace this, this, uh, this chance for um, for repentance. So Sherman's terms are too lenient. He's instructed to bring them uh, in, uh, into line with Grant's. The, the, the status of these men was uncertain in the days after the war, and that's a major point I want to make in my book. The gentleman's agreement image would sort of lead us to believe that Confederates walked away from Appomattox sort of certain that they were off the hook. But if we look at the writings of men in the rank and file, they're very uncertain of what's going to happen next. They don't know whether what those parole terms mean. They're, they're surprised and grateful that Grant has decided to be generous and let them, in effect, walk away, but they don't know what the Lincoln administration, the Republicans, are going to do next, and they're very, very worried about it. It's unclear what their political status uh, is. So um, uh, Lincoln's assassination, of course, disrupts this, um, uh, this, this moment. There's a sort of wave of northern hostility against the South in the wake of the of the assassination. Many Northerners essentially hold the Confederate higher-ups responsible for Booth's deed. There's some talk of stern retribution, executions and mass imprisonments and so on. That moment fades. There was no stomach among people in the North for max, uh, mass executions and imprisonment. The point of the war, after all, had been to, to save the Union, and the point had been to bring those errant brethren back into the fold. That's how most Northerners saw it. So Johnson's proclamation is meant to resolve the question you asked of what is the status of these men. And the answer was once you had taken that oath, um, uh, you could, you, you, your political voting rights were restored. And, and because those voting rights were restored, that is why um, Johnson's plan for reconstruction is referred to by historians as a kind of period of self-reconstruction. Johnson appointed provisional governors for the southern states, um, and uh, then those who were loyal were able to fill um, local and state uh, seats and eventually send representatives to Congress. When the Republicans, uh, Republican Congress takes over Reconstruction uh, it, with the Reconstruction Acts of 1867, there is a period of, uh, in which there is some, at the discretion of the Union commanders who control the various districts in the South, there is some brief period of disfranchisement of former Confederates, but it's never more than roughly 10 to 15 percent of former Confederates are ever disfranchised, and that's only briefly. So. 
Uh, the answer is that most could, in fact, vote uh, after, after the war, thanks to Johnson's uh, policies. Uh, while all of this was while all of this was going on, uh, I know he was imprisoned, but did Jefferson Davis play any role at all in trying to affect how his fellow Southerners felt and, and other things, or did he just fade off into nothingness? I mean, Davis is, is uh, in the immediate, in this period in which he's in prison, he is, he, is, he is laying low, but he doesn't need to proclaim himself because Davis had been um, the last ditch man. I mean, d you know, there were some Confederates, Alexander Stevens, you know, famously, this is a government in which the vice president and president are at odds with each other uh, and loathe each other, the Confederate government. Um, Stevens had held out hopes for negotiated peace, again, particularly the hope that if the Lincoln administration was voted out of power, Democrats might come into control in the North, were willing to accede to peace on the South's terms. Davis had never accepted this. In, in fact, the recent Lincoln movie is a little misleading on this point. Davis uh, was well known to be uh, will fight to the last ditch sort of man. And indeed, Lee, um, Davis is, is, is displeased to hear that Lee has surrendered his army, and Lee has to make an effort to explain to Davis why he thought it was necessary. And that effort is interesting. Lee writes Davis a letter on April 20th. This is 10 days after the farewell address. And it tells a very different sort of story about what had just happened than the farewell address does. In this letter, Lee confides in a way that he won't again, really. He, he confesses, gives voice to his sense that the Confederates had not fought in the final campaigns with the spirit that had animated them earlier in the war, that there had been uh, disillusionment in the ranks, and that desertion, particularly because of the suffering of Southern civilians back home calling on their men to desert, had undermined the Confederate cause. So. There are sort of two narratives of Confederate defeat, one that focuses on blamelessness, overwhelmed by Yankee numbers and resources, another that, that um, considers that perhaps something went wrong uh, in the Confederate war effort. And Lee's farewell address is an attempt to banish that disturbing story that might lead Confederates to feel self-recrimination or guilt or doubt, and instead to enshrine a story in which, again, the, 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 they, they had done nothing wrong. When we look at uh, General Lee, we, we look at a man who, who really lost everything through, through the Civil War. He was the rising star in the Federal Army uh, before the war. And, uh, his properties in Northern Virginia were taken from him. He, I think, financially was, was ruined because of the war. That's so right. When you look at it, a man after the war reflecting on what happened, you, you have to expect there would be some bitterness. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and because he did pay for himself a major price. He could have had probably a great political career in the United States if there hadn't been a civil war. That's absolutely right. And that's it sort of, it complicates our notion that we have this idea and in part because it's, it's uh, the image Lee um, uh, wanted to project of Lee having fought to defend home and hearth. But in fact, his home and hearth, he lost his home and hearth because of his, of his decision as, as you've just implied and paid a very, uh, uh, a, uh, um, a, a, a very, very high price indeed. So that's exactly what I'm trying to say in a sense. I feel that, you know, we, we know that in the late 19th century, a cult of reconciliation among Northerners and Southerners uh, emerges uh, and, and, um, and a celebration of the veterans on both sides and the monuments on Monument Avenue are in some ways a kind of uh, uh, artifacts of that moment, celebrating the veterans on both sides. And we've projected the image of Lee from that period as a symbol of national unification into this immediate post-war period. But in the immediate post-war period, emotions were so raw. I mean, we, we can't underestimate 
the, as you say, the, the bitterness, the sense of loss, the anger, the mistrust, and so on. So there's been a kind of gauzy view of this gentleman's agreement that doesn't capture, in a sense, what common sense would tell us about, uh, you know, about what these men had, had given and asked of their, of, of their societies.